0: on the strategies of Satan. In previous lessons, we've looked at some 10 of those strategies and consider what we can do to keep them from wrecking our Christian lives. This lesson is like the first one which was entitled, Our Christian Warfare, which I presented back on the 6th of September and it fits, uh, but it fits in a different category. In that initial lesson, the idea was that we are engaged in a lifelong battle with Satan and what our role in that struggle is as Christian soldiers. Then followed the ten lessons featuring Satan's fighting strategies and the help the Lord gives us to withstand them and remain faithful to our Savior. Tonight's lesson is about how the battle ends. Every battle is eventually fought to a conclusion. When the fire and the smoke finally fade away, one side is found to be still standing in victory and the other one beaten down in defeat. Our lesson tonight is about that conclusion. It identifies the victor and the defeated. Like a very curious reader, we're glancing to the last page in the book to see how it ends. And what we find is, the winner is Christ and His army of faithful Christians. The loser is Satan and his army of sinners and evil spirits. The final page shows those uh, beings, Satan and his confederates, in the lake of fire that's never extinguished. It's very important and very good that we are able to foresee this because it's the strong encouragement that we need to be faithful to Christ and fight right up to the very end. The lesson tonight is entitled, What Satan Cannot Do. And it's vital in this series. Because what he cannot do is what leads him to his ultimate defeat and destruction. The Bible actually shows us that there are many things that Satan cannot do. But to give a list of them doesn't accomplish much. We don't remember a list. And it only has effect at the moment that it's given or if it's shown on the screen. So what I'm going to do, I've picked out the four or five major things, activities or goals that Satan cannot do, that Satan cannot reach. And we'll just concentrate on those. And I'll give as much time to each of them as I'm able to do. We're ready for the first one. The first thing that Satan cannot do is defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. He has tried, tried many times to do it to the limit of his power and his skill using every strategy that he knows how to, but with every attempt, He was defeated and he had to leave the scene in total failure. And some of those are recorded in Scripture. When Jesus was born at Bethlehem, Satan worked through King Herod to try to destroy him. But God knew all about Satan's plan and he took measures to cause it to fail. In a dream, he saw those magi that came to visit Jesus and told them not to carry any report back to Herod as to where that child was, and when they returned home to take a different road than the one they took to get there. Then God sent an angel, this is in Matthew 2.13, who appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For, Sa- for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. In a rage that was influenced by Satan, Herod had all of the children, under the, all the male children, that is, under the age of two, in and near Bethlehem slain. But Jesus was no longer there. He missed his target. God had taken um, uh, measures to see to that. That was the first time. The second time that Satan tried to destroy Jesus was just after Jesus had been baptized by John. He had gone out into the wilderness. In Luke 4, verses 1 through 12, We we are told that Jesus was led about in the wilderness for 40 days when he was tempted by the devil. The devil, Satan, tried to get Jesus first to turn stones into bread to satisfy his agonizing hunger. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. Second, he tried to get Jesus to fall down and worship him saying, if you will do it, I'll give you the world and all of the kingdoms in it and all their glory in one minute. But Jesus didn't take that. And then third, he tried to get Jesus. He carried him to the top of the temple or took him with him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle it's called, and said, jump off onto the pavement way down there and you won't be hurt. The angels will save you. And that will prove to the masses down there that you are the Son of God. But Jesus defeated each one of those temptations and he did it by quoting the exact scripture that God had given to, for, to forbid such a reward for disobeying him. By that time, Satan was totally exasperated. He had tried every weapon. In his arsenal. And Jesus had deflected every one of them without harm. So we read there in verse 13 of Luke 4. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him. He had been totally defeated. There was nothing else to do but leave. Which is what the defeated always do. Third, Satan once tried to destroy Jesus through the apostle Peter. He took advantage of Peter's great love for Jesus, to persuade Jesus to choose a course in his mission different than God had marked out and planned for him. We read about it in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, and be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Peter could not bear the thought of things like that, those awful things happening to his beloved Lord and Master. He couldn't see Jesus being treated so cruelly So it says that he took Jesus' aside. I guess kind of got him by the arm and pulled him over to the side. And Peter began to rebuke Jesus Christ, saying, God forbid it that this should ever happen to you. It was Peter that was speaking, but it was Satan who was putting the words in his mouth. You see, in his love for Jesus, And in his short-sightedness, he was trying to get Jesus to take a different path, an easy one, a safe one than what God required. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be crucified to redeem sinful men from their sin. The only thing that can redeem sin is for innocent blood to be shed, and only Jesus had that. If he had chosen another course, what would have happened? All of us would be in our sin and could not be released from it. And we'd be under Satan's power and couldn't have it. We'd be doomed to go with him to hell at the end and spend eternity with him in that awful place. Jesus knew that Satan was at work in Peter. And so when he turned to him, (coughs) he gave him a command that's shocking. He said, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. He called Peter Satan because it was really Satan and Peter that was uh, leading him to say these things and to object to Jesus and so forth. But he failed, again. Satan failed in his effort to ruin Christ. For a fourth case, Satan then tried to destroy Jesus through the religious leaders of Israel. In John 8, we find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, trying to teach the truth to the masses that were there, because that truth would set them free free from sin, but by Satan's influence, he worked that crowd and manipulated that crowd to oppose Jesus, especially the leaders in it, to oppose Jesus and debate him every way they could on every point they could find to do it. At one point, they thought that Jesus had meant, and by something that he said, that they were the children of fornication not physical fornication but spiritual fornication and they became very angry at this and they replied to Jesus most indignantly we are the children of the one true living God but Jesus was fully aware that their opposition and their hatred toward him was due to Satan in their hearts. (coughs) So in verse 44 of John 8 there, he answered them, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You see, Jesus knew that even that day The Jewish leaders were already plotting to put him to death. Satan was responsible for the first murder, Jesus said, and he continues to uh, produce that, committing murder in people. And he thus attributes their motives to Satan, who at the beginning, of course, had inspired Cain to kill his brother Abel, the first murderer satan failed again on this occasion because his attempt to ruin jesus through the debates of the leaders and the hostility of those people did not affect jesus in the least they couldn't find one way to trip him in one point satan was defeated and then for our last case we'll look at where satan lost when he went up against jesus was by having Jesus crucified. He thought that by executing Jesus, he would gain an absolute victory over him, that he would terminate his mission, and that he would seal the doom of all mankind in sin, and then would be able to take all of us with him when he is cast into hell at the end, as he will be. But... God turned Satan's supposed victory into a total defeat. In his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter pointed this out boldly to the Jews who had served as Satan's minions in crucifying Christ. Beginning there in Acts 2 and verse 22, we hear Peter say, Jesus the Nazarene, A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. And folks, that's specifically talking about the four Roman soldiers who actually did the crucifying. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Later, in verse 32 of Acts 2 there, Peter continued, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we, he met the apostles, are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted by the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you are now seeing and hearing what was going on on the day of pentecost that very day jesus that satan had uh, led to the crucifixion jesus was building his church upon the rock the eternal kingdom of god and that same day in acts two God began to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, as we're told in Colossians 1 and verse 13. And folks, what happened in Acts 2, which is the follow-up or the consequence of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that was a total defeat for Satan, a total defeat. He thought, really thought that he had conquered Christ in that crucifixion. But instead, he had, so to speak, shot himself in the head. Folks, that's a tragedy that stands for Satan, a defeat. There's no way he can reverse it. Nevertheless, he never gives up in his evil. He continues to try to claim as many individual victims as he can. He knows that he's doomed. He's known that all along. But here's his attitude. This is the devil's attitude. If I must be cast into hell, (coughs) I'm going to take as many people with me as I can gather up for that final trip. What you and I don't want to do is be in the group that goes with him. That's what these lessons this quarter have all been about now let's go to the second thing that satan cannot do he cannot destroy the church of christ when he failed to destroy christ he devoted himself to destroying what jesus had brought forth and that's the church the family of god god's holy eternal kingdom From the day that the church began on Pentecost until today, Satan has devoted his skill and his energy to ruining the church. And he stays at it all the time. First, he tried through those hateful Jews. And then later, for two or three centuries, through the arrogant Roman emperors, trying to persecute the church out of existence Then he tried to to corrupt the church. He tried to destroy its true identity through false teachers and their human doctrines. So as you look back through the centuries of Christian history, you find the rise of these false doctrines. I'm just naming the major ones. Gnosticism, Manichaeism, Arianism, Pelagianism. Roman Catholicism and Neoplatonism, those are the major ones, but there are many, many more minor ones, but they're all Satan's work. Then Satan turned to trying to divide the church by breaking it up or dividing it up into denominations. This began after the Reformation in the 1500s. He deceived Christians to believe as they broke up into these different denominations that here we are, a whole bunch of denominations, but together in our diversity, we form the church universal. Have you ever heard that explained before or brought out before? Yeah, we got three, 400 denominations, but all together we're the church universal. And Satan now inspires groups to leave faithful congregations and move across town to form their own one-cell charismatic group who thinks they're so holy and so righteous that they have the way. Folks, if all that were not enough, Satan has attacked the church through philosophies that extol human wisdom and systems of science, and here I can name you 12 or 15 of them, but I'll just name one because it's probably the most grievous, and that's the organic theory of evolution. It is a theory, but now it says it's fact. It's unassailable. Folks, it has been assailed in several books that are really good and really powerful in the last 20, 25 years, but they just dismiss them. They won't even discuss them. They say it's unassailable. It's a tool of Satan to ruin people's souls. Satan has managed to destroy whole sections of the church, sets or groups of congregations, and he still manages to to subvert and ruin one congregation after another which let themselves be deceived by ideas that he plants in their minds. Folks, in my 60 years and uh, since I was 18, I guess, anyway, I can tell you of several congregations I know that were torn apart by dissension, nothing other than the work of Satan. And some of them went totally out of existence. And yet, the Church of Christ is not destroyed. It's still here today. And the New Testament teaches conclusively that when the last day of of this world comes, the church that Jesus established will be here with saints in it to welcome the Lord upon his return. Consider what he said in Matthew 16, verse 18. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. That gates of Hades is really a symbol for death, dying and death. Death, of course, is the result of sin, which is the product of Satan's activity. So Satan brought sin into the world through his temptations and so forth. That led to death. But Jesus says that his church will never become extinct by the death of all of its members. It has been brought low sometimes. I told you about one last week, but it lived through it. And when Jesus returns, his church, in some number identifiable, will be here in existence. That's his holy bride to await him, or who has been awaiting him, and to receive him when he appears. This is confirmed by Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. We who are alive and remain, that's the church, folks. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. He'll raise the dead who were righteous. They with the righteous who are living, the surviving church, will then be taken up by Jesus. The existence of the church at the end of the world is also assured in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24 where it says when the end comes that's the end of time when he Christ delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power the survival of the Lord's church to the very end and then past that into eternity is made certain by a heavenly scene that we see through John's eyes in the seventh chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 9. John says that he looked and he saw a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues from all around the world, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. In verse 14 we are then told who the people were that made up this great multitude. And John was told these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Cleansing their robes in the blood of the Lamb refers to the removal of sin from our souls by the blood of Jesus. These people that John saw in that vision had remained faithful unto death. And now they're enjoying the crown of everlasting life according to Revelation 2 and verse 10. The great tribulation is mentioned there. The great tribulation, these saints had survived on earth, features this word, tribulation. Brethren, that's one of the most important and special words in Revelation. Revelation has a set of key words. And if you know the meaning of those words and what they're talking about, you've got a good hold on Revelation. The tribulation specifically refers to the great trouble inflicted by Satan upon Christians while they live in this world in the effort to turn them out of the truth and make them his slaves. This verse, therefore, emphasizes that Satan cannot destroy the church. A good part of it is going to be in heaven, all of his efforts under the term the great tribulation will fail in the case of all those who resist him steadfast in the, ch- in the faith. The church will triumph over uh, unto the end. When I said most of the church, you know there are those who will be faithful and fall away. They won't make it. Now, let's move on to number three. Satan cannot separate faithful, devoted Christians from their Lord. Although the church is a unit, a distinct body, it's made up of individual members. Here we are, a church. Every one of you is an individual member of it. So Satan tries to destroy the church as a unit. He'd love to wreck this congregation as a whole. But he also tries to destroy individual Christians. He wants to take you and you and you out of the membership and put you back out in the world. The way he does this is just what we've been studying this quarter. Folks, that's why this subject is so critically, vitally important to us. Satan's strategies, he uses deception, doubting, ignorance, discouragement, fear, anger, and four more that we've studied. He doesn't neglect a one of us. He works on me, he works on you constantly. Because he doesn't want anybody in front of me and me myself to be changed, to be saved. He wants us all to end up in hell. He wants each of us to go into sin, to remain in sin as a slave the rest of our lives and be lost forever. And Satan has some considerable success in doing this. He finds it easy, really to lure many people into sin and keep them there, even people who have been in the church. Just think about the people that used to attend that don't attend anywhere anymore. A study was made by a professor at Lipscomb a few years back, uh, using several congregations in several places around the country. And by careful study and tabulation, they found that for everybody attending church and faithful, there was one in the community that had quit and gone back into sin. Jesus admitted this is the way it would be. Look at Matthew 7 and verse 13 where he said, The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. The lust of the flesh has greater appeal for most people than following Christ with self-control, putting the spiritual before the physical always and looking to heaven rather than the world about us to interpret life and find meaning in it. The lust of the eye is far more pleasing to most people than the view of the glory of eternal paradise beyond the grave. That's way off somewhere. This is right now when I'm living here. That's the idea. A flashy, worldly scene easily draws the majority of people away from Christ and his religion. The vainglory of life is the powerful ambition for power, position, and prominence. And that is what many people will easily sell their souls to get. And Satan is always at hand to buy your soul and for it to give you the temporary earthly reward that you're after. Satan is always buying the souls of Christians with earthly things we want so much. Self-denial, being content with a modest amount, and being liberal with what we have to help others does not appeal for very long to a lot of Jesus' disciples. But we're taught clearly in the New Testament that we are not helpless before Satan in this persistent effort to possess our souls. God offers us help that Satan is not able to overcome if we will receive it from him and faithfully, consistently use it. Every Christian who is faithful is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian The Holy Spirit is residing with you in your soul. And he will help you overcome Satan continually if you'll just cooperate with him and let him. Look at what we're told in 1 John 4 and verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. He who is in you as a Christian is the Holy Spirit. He who is out in the world causing wreck and ruin is Satan but the one that is in you is the greater. But we must be diligent to use that indwelling spirit to defeat Satan. Brethren, as I said in lesson number one, we're spiritual warriors and warriors must fight. That's what a warrior is. You know, Satan, you might say, comes at us with a knife. That's deadly. But as Christians, with the Holy Spirit, it's as though we have a 45 automatic. The knife is, so to speak, Satan's power. That 45 automatic will knock you off your feet. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that we have. And when we use it, Satan loses. The person with a gun always beats the person with a knife if he uses it early enough and effectively This is the idea expressed in Romans 16, verses 19 through 20. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Will soon crush Satan under your feet. We will win if we will fight. Satan's inability to overthrow Christians who use God's power available to them to resist him is brilliantly featured in a wonderful passage in Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? In all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor depth, di- nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing, not even angels or principalities or things to come, will separate us from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll paraphrase the last part of that. The fourth thing, and this is the last one I'll have time to talk about Satan cannot win the world's final battle. The book of Revelations teaches us that this long, long war between good and evil is headed toward an end, a climactic battle. The passage that describes it is in Romans 20. I mean, uh, excuse me, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It begins with this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. The previous verses here tell us about Satan being bound for a millennium. Folks, we just got to take this for uh, for granted for the moment. That's a very involved and extraneous thing to this lesson, so we're going to pass that by. But now Satan is loosed. So we proceed then to verse 8 and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the battle. The number of them is as the sand that is on the seashore. You see, it's building up for the, for the, the world's final battle. When Satan is released, it says he immediately sends out to deceive the nations. That is to persuade them that God's standard of righteousness is not the best one at all. He'll convince you, if he can, that the direct forceful way to violence, to war, to oppression works best. Obliterate the other side and you've got it. Satan's way is one of violence and hate and cruelty. It does bring quick results, but it always pulls man down to a lower quality of life. Satan is very successful in deceiving the nations and he is able to gather here at this end time a vast army to attack the kingdom of God and overthrow it. His confederacy has a name, Gog and Magog. To some people that's way off in mystery. It's taken from Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is just using that as a background. They're a coalition of Gentile nations led by a king by the name of Gog who came from the land of Magog. Magog is not a person, it's a land. Come from the land of Magog and in those two chapters in Ezekiel, they invade Israel. Israel would have been wiped out, but God intervened on their behalf and he totally destroyed this army so that the land was filled with the dead and it took seven months to bury all of them. Then verse 9 continues in Revelation 20. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So Satan brings his army up at the end against the Lord's church to put it under siege. Like in ancient times they would put a city under siege. In great fury he does all he possibly can do to destroy the church and wipe out Christianity in this one final battle. He has all the nations of the earth now on his side. And it looks like there is no way that he can fail. But you know, there's a hymn we sing and like a lot. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's the case here in this final battle. When the enemy is everywhere and the camp of the saints is besieged, it says suddenly there came down from heaven fire and devours Satan and his entire army. So here we see it. One hour, Satan And his multiplied millions of Confederates are running everywhere, irresistible, formidable. Then, in the next scene, which quickly follows, his millions of soldiers are ablaze, leaping wildly in the flames that God has sent down in greatest agony. And then, in the next scene, all of those millions and millions are just piles of ashes covering the earth Satan is now left by himself he has no confederate with him at all he's stripped of his entire force in one hour of time it was easy for God to do it the war between God and evil that lasted for ages is concluded in this sudden vast holocaust of fire that came down from heaven verse 10 in Revelation 20 Brings the long history of Satan to a decisive close. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet already had been cast, and they will be tormented there day and night forever. Who's being tormented? The devil. There's no more to say about. Satan, after Revelation 20, verse 10. He could not win. And so he lost this most colossal battle in all of history. His career at this point is everlastingly terminated. He won't bother anybody anywhere anymore. For all eternity, he's locked in hell in utter torment, in unquenchable fire. And be persuaded, folks, and this is contrary to popular opinion by far. Satan is not king of hell. Satan is not the ruler over the place. Satan is its number one victim. God originally created hell for Satan. It says that for the devil and his angels. He is the number one victor there, victim there. He will suffer in greatest agony forever. So why be on Satan's side while you're living now? Don't do it. That's what this course has all been about. Thank you very much.